We are beginning a new series today. We've finally finished uh, the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians, and we're toggling back to the Old Testament. I uh, approached this study um, uh, just this last week with a little bit of trepidation, but the more I got into it and the more I saw that we needed today to do a broad sweep, uh, uh, a broad overview, I, I think that you will see that as we enter into this study that it will have some incredible application to all of, the, all of us. I, I was talking to somebody recently, and that person said, Pastor, I am worn out. They weren't just talking about the events of the last couple of days. Really what they were talking about was that there is a kind of mental and spiritual fatigue that can grip the most dedicated followers of Christ. And so I would ask you today, and you'll see the title of the sermon series there on your, your outline, do you feel personally the need for renewal? Do you feel the need for restoration and even revival? I was reminded this last week of another series that I preached a while back during the, the shutdown, in fact, uh, about Joel and how the locusts had come in and devoured. And I know that there are people that feel like this. And even if you don't feel like that, even if you're in an okay place, but you still long to be where God wants you to be, or you feel that God is calling you to a task, but you really wonder if you have strength for that task, or if you're facing oppression or opposition, or discouragement, or if you're just stuck, maybe not in what I would call gross sin, but just complacency, no sense of hope, a rut, then this series is for you. So, you see that the outline is very ambitious. I've got nine points. Usually I have a three-point sermon. Today, it is a sermon of nine points. We're going to run through this, bring out some high points. This will serve in the days ahead, and we'll probably break these things down uh, because uh, even though it's a historical book, we'll be going through sections. It, it really fits to do it this way. So, let's answer some questions that are very, very important. Most of you know the answers to these questions, but uh, we need to understand them anyway. Why in the world study the book of Ezra. Why? Well, you know that we believe here in a, a teaching in a belief called sola scriptura. We believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, literally is God-breathed and is profitable. And so we have to come to the, to the question, and even in a church where we've hammered that over the last, how long have I been here? 16 years? Over the last 16 years, we've hammered that and hammered that. But, but the question is this, do you believe that God inspired the book of Ezra 
ever but as much as he inspired the books of First and Second Thessalonians that we just finished? And the answer is yes. Old Testament books and characters and stories instruct us. Romans 15, 4, I love what Paul says. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I asked the question a minute ago. Do some of you need hope? Where do you get hope? From the Word of God. And specifically as we go to the Old Testament, that's what the Apostle Paul says. But lo and behold, there's something else here. And I'm excited, I'm always excited, when I, when I first this last Monday began to, to look at some resources, I thought one of the first things was, okay now, how is Jesus Christ going to be revealed? In the Old Testament historical book of Ezra, I'm, I'm already beginning to see some things, but someone may ask the question, why do you believe that he's going to be revealed? Because he said it. Jesus said this to the Pharisees, the religious people, people who knew the book. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's these Scriptures, these Old Testament Scriptures that bear witness about me. And then we look at Luke, and he says this, and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, you remember the story of the road to Emmaus, he interpreted to them in all of the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And, and so we're going to see Jesus. Let, let me just give you a little hint. This study is going to be about four characters. Now, I, I didn't say this at the beginning, but we'll probably, I, I think this is where we're going to go. Ezra, and we find two of the characters there that are really key. And then before we get to Nehemiah, because he plays heavily in this, we're going to insert the book of Esther because it falls chronologically in that whole sweep of this time period of Israel. But it's interesting that Zerubbabel, we, we don't get to Ezra until the seventh chapter. Even though the book is named after him, he was a scribe. So Zerubbabel is the, is the character that we're going to be looking at at the beginning let me just give you a little bit of a foretaste of, of, of what Zerubbabel actually was all about. He was in the line of David, which makes him in the line of Jesus. And he was the one who led, get this, led the children of Israel into their own land where they would be restored. Does that sound anything like a type of Christ? Ezra was from the Aaronic line, the priestly line. And by the way, in salvation, we need both the king to lead us out and give us restoration, and we need a priest to teach us what to do. So I, I'm excited to unpack this book so that we can learn more about Jesus. Oh, there's one other thing, and I hope that today we will see some of this. The Word of God is living and active, the whole thing sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And my, my heartfelt desire today is that even in this sermon, there's going to be some piercing from the Word of God. Okay, 
So let's go back and set the context. If you've got your Bibles open to Ezra, and you do, if you've got a smart device, you're going to be a little bit hindered here, because when I open, I've got Ezra over here on the right, and I've got the ending of Second Chronicles on the left. And so, let, let, let's look at this. Set the context. Very, very briefly, how in the world do God's people get themselves into the messes they do? I'm not, I'm not just talking about Israel and the 70 years of captivity. I'm talking about us today, and we do that even today. Let's set some context. We're going to look at this verse in, in just a minute. We're not going to go through the whole thing that is listed there on your outline, but as some context, this is the summary of God's chosen people and their sad ending of being deported to Babylon, where they spent 70 years as captives. Jerusalem, the whole city, the temple, the place where God dwelt had been destroyed. Solomon, if you'll remember, was the last of the three kings, Saul, David, Solomon, to enjoy a united kingdom. But after him, and by the way, he built the original temple. But even when we get to the end of his life, we saw that, 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 that Solomon had begun to defect from the ways of the Lord. Partial obedience, which, by the way, is disobedience. And he went away from the Lord. After he died, Israel went through a civil war. Now, what's interesting, if you go back through this and in, in, in your Daily devotionals, I think that you're in the book of Second Chronicles right now. I know I am. And if you go back historically and look, you'll find that the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, were carried off before Judah and Benjamin, all right? Their wickedness was so great that God had the Assyrians come in and, and take them into captivity. Now, what, what's really interesting about that is that there is a guy's name that's mentioned over and over again when we go through the list of the kings, the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. His name was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He was the first king after the civil war. Basically, he and Rehoboam got into it, and so there was the civil war, and they split up. And he was wicked. His name became synonymous. And if you read it, you're going to see it. Whenever a new king would come up, great hope. But what happened? He would sin in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he would lead the people astray. And he did that over and over. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, back then would have been to us today like saying the word Hitler or Judas. He was infamous rather than famous. They were carried away into captivity. Then a hundred years later. Now, if you read the history of the kings of Judah, and Benjamin's thrown in there too, they had some, some good kings mingled with the, with the bad. In, in fact, it's an interesting exercise. I encourage you to do that as you study through this. And you look at all of the, the, the kings of Judah just read through it, and then I, I've got in my Bible a plus for the good kings, a minus 
for the bad kings and a, a, a mixture of both because a lot of them were just really, really close, but they didn't quite go far enough. So what did God do? And we see this in this passage that is listed there for you from Second Chronicles, the last chapter. Here's what God did. Let me just say something to you about this. In the midst of this history, okay, God is always gracious to call His people away from their sin. And over and over and over He did it, and He does it. L look at this phrase that's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them His messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until, and this is scary, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. These are his covenant people. Now, we're going to come back and say he's not going to forget them. He doesn't forget them. But over and over and over again, he had spoken to them and giving them loving warnings until they were carried off a hundred years after the kingdom of Israel fell, the southern kingdom of Judah fell to Babylon. And for 70 years, they were in captivity. But that's not the end of the story. Because God, now we're going to see him sovereignly move to do something to bring about the restoration of his people. Now, now look at the rest of the outline. We're going to spend the rest of this time, after this introduction of the history, the backstory. And I want you to know that what I've written there is really not and I want you to get this, it's not triumphalism. Triumphalism is a certain way that, that sometimes preachers preach, where that if you plug in certain things, then you can do the great and the grand, you can change the world. Now, I'm not saying those things, but what I am saying is the fact that if you will stick to the fundamentals that we are going to find in this book, and in Esther, and in Nehemiah, then you really can change yourself, which will, in effect, change the world right around you. Amen. And then it'll filter out into the world around you. Maybe we're talking about a, a, a relationship, like a marriage, and then into your family, and then into your church, and then into your world. You know, we're we're having the, the Will Rogers back-to-school bash tonight. And that's a good thing, and every one of you ought to be there. You really ought to, 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 to cheer our, our, our teachers down there on and to, to meet the kids and, and, and the administrators and all of the rest of that. But I'll tell you this, before you get there, and this will be one of the points, first things first, you need to look inside and make sure you're sticking to the fundamentals. Okay, so with that, do you really want to change the world? Do you want to change your world? 
First thing is this, trust that God is faithful to keep his promises. Uh, this outline, by the way, you could go through and you could write down these scriptures. I've outlined these. It's a marvelous, marvelous way to study the, the broad outline of the book. Okay, now let's, let's watch what happens here. And perhaps you read this or, or you've read it before. And, and we're going to see some things that are absolutely stunning about the promises of God and how he can be trusted. In other words, God is sovereign in everything in your life. Okay, here's what Ezra 1.1 says. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth, watch this, of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This is exactly how 2 Chronicles 36 ends. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it into writing. And then we read on throughout the rest of the chapter to see what did, and we'll talk about that more in the future. But let me just say this, stop right here, and say that God has purposed to move in history, and nothing can stop him. Now, I want you to look at this for a minute. I, I, I was blown away as I was reminded how precise God is when he wants to demonstrate his purpose in the world. Here we have, and that thing, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that's not some throwaway phrase. Do you realize that, this is stunning, more than 100 years before this was written, that Jeremiah and Isaiah prophesied specifically about this event, even using the exact names. There's a lot here. I, 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 you can write down the references. I, I hope you will for your own study, but I just want to walk you through this. I've got about four or five slides with just chocked full of this so you can follow what I just said. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. This is Jeremiah. Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send. God is going to send Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Look what he calls Nebuchadnezzar. As far as I can tell, Nebuchadnezzar was never a believer. But he served the purposes of God, just like Cyrus serve the purposes of God. And I will bring them, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans against this land and its inhabitants, and I will devote them. We're talking about Judah and Benjamin. When he brings Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king on the face of the earth at that time, against Judah and Benjamin, I will devote them to destruction. God has a purpose in this. And make them a horror 
What, what was Judah supposed to be? What was Israel supposed to be? A glory of the Lord so that the nations would see. But he said, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to punish them for their atrocities over and over and over again. I will make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. These nations, talking about Judah and Benjamin, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. We'll get more into how all of that fits together next week, talking more about the, the sovereignty of God. But, but watch. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my people, my promises, and bring you back to this place. And Isaiah even spells it out in an in a extremely clear way. Look at this. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you out of the room, I am the Lord who says of Cyrus, remember this is a hundred years before Ezra 1.1 was penned, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and the temple, your foundation will be laid. I, I, I don't know about you. I, I told somebody this morning, this, this whole preparation this past week was filled with wow moments for me. And the challenge is getting up and verbalizing the truth in such a way, and, and, and it's more than just me, it's the Holy Spirit, so that it becomes a wow moment for you. This is talking about the power of our sovereign God to do exactly what he says he will do and even reveal it a hundred years before he was going to do it. In fact, the prophet Habakkuk said this, and, and this is not talking, usually this verse is used about good things. This was talking about the foreseen destruction. He said, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if told, and they didn't believe it. This is a foundational truth, the sovereignty of God that runs all the way through the Word of God. It undergirds the message of salvation, that God has a definite plan in human history and in your history. Not only that, but he also carries out his plans. How, how can God do that? How can he take the most powerful man? Now, we're moving from Nebuchadnezzar because Cyrus, the king of Persia, has taken over. They, they defeated Babylon, okay? So he is the most powerful man. How could God do that? Because God... You've seen this verse before. 
God can take the heart of any person, including the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and use that person according to God's good pleasure, he can turn his heart. He turned the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. He turned the heart of Cyrus. Does that say anything? Does that, does that give you any hope? Again, let, let's watch out for triumphalism. But does that give you any hope? Talking about the sovereignty of God. Seeing in Ezra 1.1, going back and setting the, the, the background for that. Does that give anyone here any hope for what's going on around you today? It should. And there may be some of you who are so, well, if you're young, you, you, do, you, you don't watch, maybe your parents or grandparents do, Fox News or the other news programs, and so you don't get carried away. You're kind of, I, let me say it like this, clueless about some of the things that are happening. But if you are worried about political leaders today. By the way, parenthetically, do you pray for them as you're commanded? I hope you do. But if you're worried about some of them, do you understand that this takes priority over the heart or the mind of any political leader? What about recent social developments? What about the, what feels to us like the increase, at least in, in, in our culture, in our society, the, the increase, it's almost an explosion of hate and violence, of things in the last 20 years that those of us who are old enough could not even dream would have happened in the redefining of some basic identities and structures of our very life and society. Are you concerned about government overreach? <laughs> this world is God's. And if I don't tell you anything else, you need to understand that. His reach outreaches any government overreach. He rules over nations. He sets up leaders and he deposes leaders. Now, you and I need to do what we can as believers and as good citizens. And, and, and a preacher preaching this can preach this in any nation on earth. We ought to do what we can. But bottom line is that individually we can't prevent or control a whole lot. But he can. And so we start with that, sovereignty of God. I, I've told people over and over this about the things happening in their individual life. You're going to be dead in the water unless you start with this. God is God, his sovereignty, and God is good Amen. all the time. If you start with your circumstance and try to work to a definition of God's character, it, it's, there's going to be a, a glitch. You're going to start questioning the goodness of God. But if you start with the biblical revelation that God is God and God is good, 
and then you begin to interpret whatever circumstance of life you're going through, that's going to give you a leg up, folks. Second thing, do you want to change? That's good. You're going to be a world changer if you believe in the sovereignty of God. We're going to talk about that more next week, Lord willing, unless he sovereignly comes back, which I wouldn't be too unhappy if he did, <laughs> frankly. Okay, do you want to change the world? This is huge. God is sovereign, but you're responsible. And so respond to God's call to follow him. Look at this. This is also in chapter 1 and then chapter 2, the whole thing. You think, do you think you can get anything out of lists, a book? I mean, look at chapter 2. Then rose up the heads of the father's household of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone, everyone, not the whole bunch. It wasn't all of them. This was a remnant. God always works through a remnant of those, listen, of those who obey him. There, there, there are some reasons why some of them stayed in Babylon. We'll get to that in just a second. So everyone, which ones, which ones responded and obeyed God to go back to Jerusalem? Because the king, the king was going to, he, he said, you can go back. Uh, the ones whose hearts were stirred. So just like God can move the hearts of people like, like the king, he can move the hearts of people in this church to accomplish his will. And that's what happened. Uh, to go up and rebuild the house uh, of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, these were the people of the province that came up out of captivity with Zerubbabel, each to his own town. So, Zerubbabel leads the first wave. There are three waves of returnees. Ezra comes in, in, in seven, chapter 7, and we'll see that on, and then Nehemiah comes in, in his book. So, if you want to change the world, Respond. This is not just about Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Have you ever heard of Mizpar? Have you? Have you ever heard of Parash? Have you ever heard of Asgad? Not Asgard. Have you ever heard of the unnamed sons? Well, of course you haven't. They're unnamed. Their hearts were stirred. Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah could not have done it by themselves. The hearts of the people had to be stirred. Everybody was called, but not everybody responded to the call. COVID has not changed things. I said this when it first started. I really don't believe it has. It is only revealed. Oh, yeah, yeah, some things have changed. But that's not the biggest thing. People talk about the changes that have changes in churches. People say, how's your church since COVID? Surely there have been changes, but I, in my mind, it's more revelation than anything else. Church members, now I, and, and I understand, 
I pray that you hear my heart on this. I understand when people to, to, to rightly protect themselves do not come, <clears throat> or people who, a new season of life or whatever, they do some shifting. I, I understand that. But to see people who've become settled being sidelined. Could I say that again? To see people who, and maybe they're even attenders, and I'm not talking about just the people at home, to see people who've become settled to be sidelined is not so much a change as it is a revelation. You know what this second point says as much as anything? Get in the game. Respond to the challenges. Now, I want you to watch this. We're going to look at Ezra a little bit more. We're going to see in, in one of the other points, uh, just a little bit about this guy. But I want to ask you, how did he, how did he do that? Now, remember, Ezra's parents and Zerubbabel's and Nehemiah's parents probably were all apart, I'm guessing, but the likelihood is they were a part of the deportations 70 years early, earlier. So Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, contemporaries, could have been around my age. You're saying, what is your age? Around 70, okay? I'm older than that, but around 70. That could have been. Where did they get that? Did they just come up with, with and, and you read the kind of people that they were and the types of Christ that they were? Listen, folks, they didn't get that in a vacuum. And if we look back at some of the, the historical characters, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego living in Babylon, a corrupt and a wicked society, how did they get the word? It's because they had parents and members of their community of faith who didn't forget God in Babylon. And they taught the next generation. They taught them the Word. I, I think they tried to live the Word. Now, you've you got to realize that this was a different situation than e the Egyptian slavery. You, you, sometimes that's, that's blurred over there. Were they in captivity? Yes. But it was not the same kind of slavery as in Egypt. They were comfortable in Babylon. They were. Daniel and and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and others, they, they were people of prominence. They were raised to, to positions of, of leadership, even though born in captivity. You know, one of the things that says to me is that God is not inactive, even if we are settled in being sidelined. Could, could I just make an application? I don't want a Bible beat or guilt or shame anybody. 
but that, that's a need today. Who's going to teach in the midst? Is it, is it too much to say we're living in a modern-day Babylon? Is it? Who's going to be responsible to teach our children so they can be Ezra's and Zerubbabel's and Nehemiah's? Who's going to do it? It's us. We've made appeal after appeal after appeal for our children's ministry. Again, I, I don't think COVID has changed as much as it's revealed. We still need workers. I love this because I don't have to, I don't have to shame or guilt or Bible beat anybody into saying, okay, I'll do it. The preacher got on to me. I just let the Holy Spirit stir the hearts of those. We don't want just warm bodies. We want people who will feel called to, to work with this next generation and maybe even people that are kind of unlikely. We'll talk about, you say, well, I can't, I, I, don't, I don't know enough to teach. Do you know more than a third grader? <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. All right. Chapter 2, I, got, I just got to say this, and we'll come back to it. Before you do that, and before you, okay, I'm going to jump in and work, and, and we, we can always talk about work, but before you get busy working, make sure your name is on the list. It, it, it lists. I, I love that. Here's the specific lists. Now, that's for a couple of reasons. We'll get to that. The purity of the bloodline and all the rest as they were going back. But, but I just want you to make, this is a salvation appeal. Make sure your name is on the list. We won't save people working with our kids. We won't save people in our church. So the appeal is just make sure your name's on the list because if anyone's name is not on the list of those who respond to the call of God for salvation, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Do we need to move on? Yes, we do. Do you want to change the world then? Oh, I, I said just a minute ago, I, surely I couldn't do that unless when you respond to his call, he will supply your needs. If, if you, some of you found that out. You've been, you've been tasked with doing something that was way beyond you. You said, I can't do that. And, and it could be a number of things, and yet God every time has supplied the need that you had. He always resources what he calls people to do. Amen. He, God, this is Cyrus talking, has charged me, Cyrus, to build him a house. So then you read on, let each survivor be assisted by the men of his place. He wanted to make sure that these Jews who responded, who were obedient, these chosen ones who were, who were going to be obedient to go back to the land were resourced as they did. And all who were about them aided them. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord. And it reminds me a little bit of exactly what happened when the children of Israel were leaving Egypt. A little bit different situation, but God resourced them. As they were going out, the, the Egyptians, they stirred their hearts. They just gave them, gave them money. Why? For the building of the tabernacle. Here it's the building of the temple. And so it's, I love this. It doesn't say this about the, uh, the children of Israel going out of Babylon. But here it says they plundered. So they plundered 
the Egyptians. Great, great truth here. If you respond to the call of God for whatever it is, God will supply what you need. Okay. Do you want to change the world? Put first things first. I mentioned this a minute ago. First things first. What did they do? This is so insightful. Ezra 3, 2, and 6, they arose, they built. What did they build first? The altar of God. The God of Israel. Why? To worship, to offer burnt offerings on it. From the first day of the seventh month, they begin to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation, watch this, of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. When the Jews returned to Jerusalem, their focus was on rebuilding the temple first. In fact, they did it. Then in the last part of Ezra, we see the reforms that were instituted. That's an interesting read. In case you just want to read the whole sweep of it, and yes, it does have application for today. Maybe not in exactly the same way, but it does. But it wasn't until Nehemiah, after the temple had been rebuilt for worship, that they rebuilt the walls and the gates. Why? First things first. The temple was used for spiritual purposes, for purposes of worship while the wall was used for military and political purposes. Putting, listen, in your life and in the life of this church, putting first things first, spiritual matters first, is always our first priority. And remember, is Jesus found even in this? Yeah, when he said there is something greater than the temple here. So when we talk about first things first, what is it, students? What's the first thing that we need to take care of? I alluded to this a minute ago. It's your heart. And if you're going to change the world, start there. Your altar is the heart. You know, I think back to, we hear a lot of things about shaping our culture today. And I think back to the early part of our our country, the Great Awakening in the 1700s. Because the people of God were most concerned with first things first, the altar of the heart, their worship, they ended up having such an incredible impact on the world around them. Bars were shut down. Brothels were shut down. The the whole society profited because of what they did. Put first things first. Let's move on. We've still got several more points. Do you want to change the world? Persevere. I'm going to put these two together. Persevere in opposition and setbacks because there will be opposition. There will be setbacks. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and by force and power made them to cease. They got them to quit working for a while. And let me put it with this one. Do you want to change the world? Never give up. We've got two statements there. Never get up, give up, and no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Let me give you the scripture and then tell you to look up these two. I want you to Google two names, read them before we get to them next couple of weeks. Then they arose and began to rebuild the house of God. We are servants 
This was their reply. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Look up and read the story of Charles Simeon, S-I-M-E-O-N, Charles Simeon. Google that. He was a preacher in the 1700s, and uh, no, yeah, 1700s, and Charles Simeon went through, you can just read about it, some of the most incredible things, opposition to his ministry, yet he persevered. Then there's another one that I want you to look up. That's on your outline. That was that part of persevere in, in the midst of troubles and trials and all the rest of that. But look up the name William Borden. William Borden lived in the late 1800s to the early 1900s. By the way, uh, Charles Simeon died when he was around almost 80. William Borden died when he was 25. But he's the one who wrote those incredible words, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. So don't let opposition overcome you. Get back to the fundamentals if you want to change the world. And then three things that are so important at the last. And here we see the, 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 the person, the character of Ezra. Do you want the, to change the world? You knew this was coming. Study the Bible. I, I really love Ezra 7, 6 and 7, 10. We're going to look at both those. Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord God. His God was on him. But look at this. For Ezra had set his heart to do three things. Study the law of the Lord. First thing. Do the law of the Lord. As a believer filled with the Holy Spirit, and teach the law of the Lord. Three things. Th those are absolutely vital. In fact, uh, if you want to write that down, 710, probably the key verse in the entire book. And I, I, I thought, I, whenever I prepare a sermon, different people will pop into my mind. I know what you're thinking. If I'm talking about sin, certain people pop. No. <laughs> Application. You know, when I read this, you know who, that what group, what demographic I was thinking of? I was thinking of these students that are sitting over here. And adults, we live, we live in, we live in Babylon. They're, they're being raised in Babylon. What's your hope, students? Study the Word. Do the Word. The Holy Spirit is your power to do the Word once it's put, put into your heart, and then teach the Word for those of us who are adults. Boy, can't wait to come back to these things individually. What do you add to that? You pray 
with fasting. I didn't put that on the notes, but it's obvious in the verse, so put that down. Pray with fasting, and at the evening sacrifice, I rose. I can't wait to get to this incredible prayer of Ezra in Ezra chapter 9. I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the God, to the Lord my God. And as a church committed to delighting in God and declaring His glory from our neighborhoods to the nations, we simply cannot do that without these fundamental disciplines individually and corporately. Could I just put in another plug? We have a a corporate prayer time the first Sunday of every month. I I know some, I've forgotten about those but it would be wonderful to see the whole church where we have to move out of the chapel and move here with people who are devoted to praying for our individual needs and corporate needs and societal needs as well. Last thing is this, if you want to change the world, repent. Repent. Whoops. And uh, this is the verse, Ezra 10, 2. We have broken faith with our God, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. I don't know specifically how you need to repent. For the people of Israel, it was putting away some, some things that they had, uh, uh, it, it was going to be tough. It reminds me of Jesus' words to cut off and pluck out. But repentance is absolutely necessary. So, to wrap it up, why study Ezra? I hope and pray that this message has primed the pump. Wow. Overviews are always a challenge, okay? But we've just gone through the book of uh, 10 chapters, um, giving you the rough outline. But let me apply it and ask you to take these things to heart. They're reminders. This is a story of how God restores a heart that has fallen into sin. God wants a relationship with you. And if this book says anything, it says that no matter how badly you have defected, or how far you have run away from Him, that His mercies are fresh every morning. This is not just about a people who were in slavery 2,500 years ago. God's grace is greater than our rebellion. And the first thing that I would say is today's message and the message of Ezra, the message of the Bible is an invitation for you to come out of the bondage of complacency and or captivity to sin, that's Babylon. And I'll remind you, Christian, Babylon is not your home. That's why God is leading us out to follow Him, and He's leading you to come home to Jesus. And by the way, I'll go back and say this again. Make sure your name is on the list. Serve your church. Know that God will supply your needs. God is God and God is good. 
and he will restore you.